Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hello and uh, good morning to you. Uh, here we go again, a Monday. <laughs> I do have difficulty uh, getting getting back into the swing on a Monday, especially after a horrific uh, weekend with um, the slaughter in New Zealand. I and of course the failure of our president to adequately address it. At least he didn't say they're very fine people on both sides, but he instead tried to minimize the problem. Doesn't think white nationalism is a problem, and he thinks they're just a few people. Right. That's why That's why this is uh, a global terrorism issue and uh, and all the statistics that you see and these statistics are verifiable where it is homegrown white Americans white American males who are the terrorists that we need to safeguard ourselves against it is not people coming across the borders. It is not even ISIS. It is, ladies and gentlemen, white Christian males, American, or in this case, Australian, or in other cases, you can just start naming countries. They all have them, but they all fit the same profile, and they have all ingested, digested, and um, sworn on to this false history that uh, keeps them keeps them in this constant state of of uh, fear that they are being replaced. <coughs> That's the word you hear. This guy used it too. Replace. Jews shall not replace us. The concern that these immigrants are replacing them. I. And I I tried to uh, I believe it was yes last Friday, uh, talk about the the story that they buy and how it has nothing to do with reality or with fact but they do believe that there is a white genocide happening and uh, you cannot reason with people like this education has a shot at uh, preventing it's spread, but once somebody becomes infected with this crap, I, I, can't, I can't imagine, and there's, there's so many. And it is spread, not just in the dark corners of the Internet. It is spread, parts of it, on Fox News. It is spread on right-wing radio and other sites. It is spread in the speeches of members of Congress. It is spread from the White House with numbing regularity. In fact, the current occupant of the White House uh, based his uh, victorious presidential run on this sense of invasion the same word used by the killer in New Zealand on this invasion of dark-skinned people that are not us.
Trump uses the same language. He refuses. I mean, this is just an, the last time. Refuses to condemn white nationalism. In fact, correct me, but didn't he say he was a, a nationalist? And that effort to sanitize the term. I don't know. I don't know. And then did anybody else, I mean, I, I don't know. I didn't see, I, here he calls the cameras in and uh, vetoes the, his first, his first uh, effort to use his presidential veto. He uses it on the legislation or resolution that was passed by both houses of Congress uh, rejecting his uh, declaration of a national emergency. And let us remember what that national emergency is about. It's about safeguarding us from the invasion of brown people fleeing murder and uh, and horror in their own countries looking for an opportunity known to be hard-working family-oriented people people that we used to welcome with open arms sometimes so there he is on the very day of the massacre in Christchurch signing legislation well signing the veto to deny um, the Congress and its attempt to block his border wall emergency. The two stories are related. <laughs> any any other White House would have not done the veto or made it public that day, surrounded as he was by his head of Homeland Security and all the other xenophobes in his administration and then when he was asked by reporters about what happened in New Zealand he says that he doesn't think it's a big problem <laughs> God almighty and in fact on Friday, that very same day, he reiterated that there was nothing less than an invasion of the United States by immigrants. That's exactly what the killer in New Zealand thought. Exactly. And he took action because when you're being invaded what do you do to the invaders you kill them and that is what he did and that the president would double down on his rhetoric on the very day that this played out in the way it did in New Zealand is uh, again it is hard to acknowledge how much shame an American has to carry now, right? Uh, we're ashamed and should be. So. And let's make no mistake, uh, we have a president who encourages, aids and abets white nationalism and the spreading of these depictions 
of desperate refugees as invaders. Uh, since Donald Trump has become the President of the United States, these incidents have skyrocketed. Maybe you cannot draw a direct line, but any sentient being can tell it's there. All you have to do is read the white nationalists' publications. They love this guy. He's not enough of a white nationalist for him, but he's just fine. And, in fact, the killer in New Zealand gave him a nod. The President of the United States of America. And let us recall that it was last week that this same president, and I, I, I don't remember if I even got around to talking about it, because these kinds of utterances coming from him are so constant that, again, we, we, we lose focus. Last week, he suggested that his supporters might resort to violence. And when I first saw it, I thought, you are kidding. He said that? And he said it while talking to a Breitbart reporter about the fact that, you know, the Republicans, uh, the Democrats had been besting them since they regained uh, the House. They've been scoring victories. And the president said, the president said, you know, the left plays a tougher game. It's very funny. I actually think that the people on the right are tougher, but they don't play it tougher. Okay, said the president. Then he continued, I can tell you that I have the support of the police, the support of the military, the support of the bikers for Trump. I have the tough people, but they don't play it tough until they get to a certain point. And then it would be very, very bad. His usual lack of eloquence there, it's quite clear what he's saying. I can always call in the police, the military, and bikers to do what they can do. That's violence, he's suggesting. And it brings to mind what Michael Cohen chillingly said at, uh, at his uh, congressional hearing, that he was concerned that there would not be another peaceful transition of power in the United States if Trump was not reelected, which, of course... Um, has been one of the glories of this country that after hard-fought, even contested elections, the people on both sides do what they have to do. I was saying if Trump lost, do you think he would even attend the inauguration of his successor as every president in the past, at least in my memory, has? Can one imagine? And David Leonhardt uh, today in his uh, column 
uh, talks about one of the many books that are now out there, uh, this one titled uh, How Democracies Die. There's a lot of people trying to warn us about uh, what they see happening in the United States and how what is happening in the United States looks frighteningly similar to other countries' democracies going down. And the guy who wrote How Democracies Die has, has said that if you look at what Trump, how he operates, his constant lies um, about his opponents, about his own achievements, about his history, about what people say to him, about, I mean, it, it just constant uh, lies. Um, and then his allusions to patriotic uh, violence, which he did while running for president, right? How he would egg on his crowd, his mob, to uh, violence against media. Uh, if you look at what is, how that kind of presidential leadership plays out, it, you see it playing out in Venezuela's, Venezuela with Hugo Chavez and now Maduro. Same, same playbook. And, uh, and Nazi Germany and a lot of other places. Violent talk, which Trump excels at, can at minimum encourage violent acts by others. And we know it. We've, we've lived it too many times in this country, the, the lone wolf copycat after some horrific massacre here that we barely blink at anymore, and then often another one trying to up that one, learning from them. This guy in New Zealand has upped the ante substantially by live, <laughs> live streaming his murderous rampage, which, if you know anything about video games, made him essentially the video player. We, uh, people who play video games are used to what you would see on someone wearing a head cam, as he did, doing what he was doing. And the fact that that snuff video is out there, that technology, this wondrous technology we have, I is not so great at shielding us from that horror, and by not being able to do that, again, it aids and abets copycatters, people who want to learn now from the genius of this guy in New Zealand, people who learn different lessons, right? Remember when that Republican was running for Congress, I forget where, some place like Nebraska or something, when he just body slammed some reporter who asked him a question he didn't like, he just took the guy out, and he was praised by Trump. You remember that? He also, by the way, was rewarded by the electorate because he was elected after he did what was an assault of a reporter doing his job. All of the extremist killings in the United States in the last year were committed by <coughs> the right wing. Every single one.
they were either self-avowed white supremacists or they were people spouting the usual right-wing, anti-government, deep state, God knows what kind of views. These are the terrorists that we have to safeguard ourselves from. And we now have leadership in Washington that refuses to even acknowledge that this is a problem and instead creates a problem of saying that we are under attack from women and children coming in from Guatemala. Leonhardt uh, ends his piece by saying it, it isn't very complicated. The man with the world's largest bully pulpit keeps encouraging violence and white nationalism. And lo and behold, white nationalist violence is on the rise. You have to work pretty hard to persuade yourself that that's just a big coincidence. God almighty. Uh. Oh, there was this guy. You remember this guy? Because this was in the news the other day, too. Remember the mail bomber? Remember the guy who who sent uh, mail bombs to first, I think, George Soros, the first one, uh, and then, geez, just about everybody, Barack Obama got sent one, uh, Hillary Clinton got one, um, CNN, I think, got more than one. He was sending them to all of the folks that Donald Trump says are people that need to be locked up or aren't real Americans or are promulgating propaganda and fake news. So you remember the guy who sent, and I can't remember, how many of them did he send? 30, almost, almost 30 bombs this guy sent. His name is Cesar Sayak. Well, he was in a court in Manhattan last week and uh, he pled guilty. 30 federal charges, including using a weapon of mass destruction. Remember his van? It was, it, it was covered with Fox News right-wing Limbaugh-esque greeds against uh, liberals. Uh, he had an image of Hillary Clinton in the crosshairs. And he had a pretty big uh, social media presence in which he shared all of his ingenious uh, thoughts and ideas and in which he often praised Donald Trump. I don't know what we do about Facebook and and all these other platforms where these things get uh, help radicalize these people and heads help spread this misinformation. I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, the cat now is always out of the bag. And this is dangerous. Did you read somewhere that, that in fact, right before the guy started shooting, uh, he said to those who were watching, I guess, in real time, his murderous uh, rampage? I don't know. Was it, was it in real time that he put it up? I, I don't even know how this crap works. I guess so. That he told people, follow. Did he say follow people? PewDiePie, PewDiePie, PewDiePie. 
And it's like, what? Well, it turns out that PewDiePie, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, is the has earned the biggest following on YouTube. Now wait, here's a guy about to massacre a whole bunch of human beings in a mosque. And one of the last things he tells his supporters is watch this guy, this other guy on social media. This is the last advice I'm giving you before I go off into martyrdom or wherever the hell it is I'm going. And um, PewDiePie is a guy in Norway, a Swede, in Sweden, a good Nordic. And he uh, has 89 million, 89 million YouTube followers. And he puts up videos and sometimes funny stuff and does video game narration. And, uh, you know, people are always saying nobody can figure out how to monetize uh, social media. Uh, this guy has with his 39, how, what did I say, 89 million subscribers. That means people are giving, are paying to see his stuff. 89 people, million people around the world. And he, it says here, earned just last year over $15 million dollars. Just this Swedish guy sitting there. And lo and behold, I mean, he had big corporate backers. Disney was associated with him until 2017. And then they severed ties. And they only severed ties after the Wall Street Journal identified at least nine of PewDiePie's uh, videos uh, that were clearly anti-Semitic. In one, a pair of guys unfurl a sign that reads, Death to all Jews, as they laugh and dance. In another, the guy himself wears a brown military uniform, nodding along to archival footage of Adolf Hitler delivering a speech. He is the most popular, richest guy on YouTube. What does that tell you? The Daily Stormer, which is, a, you know, a, a Nazi website here, noted um, that this guy's videos... Nor help normalize Nazism and help to marginalize our enemies. So the Daily Stormer and the neo-Nazis here gave PewDiePie a thank you very much, even though he has denied that he's doing this. So he, pull, he pulled certain videos. He said, and as these people always say, I understand that some people were offended by these videos, but I was just joking. <laughs> They're always, they have such an interesting sense of humor. They're always just joking. So he doesn't make a total point out of coming. I'm sure a lot of his other content is okay, but he reaches 89 million people and he slides in the pro-Hitler, anti-Jew stuff all the time, and clearly the guy who committed the violence in New Zealand thought that he should tell anyone that might find his work noble that they should watch this guy. How does that guy get to be the biggest thing on YouTube?
YouTube. God. Facebook. God. Twitter. Lord, help us. And none of it's going away. I've talked before about how a number of people, especially and interestingly, people who helped create this social media, uh, are now turning on it, wouldn't allow their own children to ever get on it. I, these are people, I, I think I told you once I gave a speech, where was I, in Aspenwall or something, and I, I bumped into a guy here, a local guy who founded some tech company, and it got bought out by a big fish, and so he's really rich now, and he's coming up with other ideas and he doesn't even have a smartphone and I said but I mean you're in the business you don't even have your own little he said I spend my life in front of a screen as so many of us do why do I want to carry it around on myself so that I am never away from it so it's interesting that a lot of the people who work in it, have made millions in it, realize it, it's danger. And it's addictive danger, for one. I mean, there's so many dangers, it's hard to even... It is increasingly a dangerous to democracy. There was a big piece in the Sunday, I think, Times, talking about how China... Uh, now uses all these tools that technology has brought us to literally keep track of almost every, of all the billions of people they have. They are developing a system where they literally can keep track of everybody. And if you think that's going to just be China, <laughs> you would be incorrect. That is now... Uh, method of potential control for autocracies that they have never had before. And so technology has been the greatest gift, I think, to autocracies and perhaps a great threat to democracy, even though when it first started out, it was looked at as the most incredible gift to the common person, to democracy. People can connect. People can talk to each other. People can, yeah, right. And guess what? All those connections can be recorded and tracked by the powers that be. So sure, you connect away. And then lo and behold, all of a sudden, somebody shows up at your door and you end up in a gulag somewhere. So the technology is not going away. But where it's taking us is, I think, to a very dark place. I mean, even in terms, and we've talked about this, social relationships. Where was I yesterday? Um, I was someplace. I was sitting and I turned, oh, it's a bus stop. And I looked, and there were probably about 10 other people there, all ages, all races. There were blacks, Asians, whites, old people, young people, every single one. It was like that, every single one, head down, looking at that screen. A lot of them had earplugs or headphones, so they were sealed off in some ways from the rest of us. And I looked at them, and not that I couldn't have joined them immediately, and often do, and I thought, this is not good. <laughs> there's no way. There's no way that people not being where they really are is good or not interacting with one another in a real way. There's no way it's good. So here, another uh, piece that I've been sitting on for a while um, that said something, and, and this, is, this is it. This is why 
we need to start fighting back a little bit on an individual level. Here's a quote. And the quote is from a former Google executive. Okay. Never before in history, and this is not an overstatement, so listen to what I'm going to say. Never before in history have the decisions of a handful of mostly men, white, living in San Francisco, aged 25 to 35, working at three companies, Google, Apple, Facebook, never before in the history of the world have such a little group, non-representative group of human beings had so much impact on how millions upon millions upon millions of people all over the world spend their time, their attention, And if you think the people that are continuing to work this technology are thinking while they do it, is this good for humanity? Would this be good for... No, that's not what's driving them. It's being able to say, I did this. And of course, getting rich is holy hell for doing it. So, I don't know about you, but I know guys 25 to 30s to 35. <laughs> I know that age range. White guys. They're the ones who created this environment, which we all now live in. Do you think they ever thought about the implications of human relationships? the implications for this stuff to be abused by autocrats, the implications for any sense of privacy being decimated? No. And yet, increasingly, people in Silicon Valley are voicing their concerns especially about what this technology is doing to young minds. For God's sakes, uh, the head of Apple, Mr. Apple, <laughs> as the president famously called him, <laughs> Mr. Apple, Tim Cook, uh, he has told reporters that he did not want his, he has no children, he did not want his nephew on any social media platforms. Steve Jobs did not want his children anywhere near an iPad. Technology is now eating up every square inch of our public life, even of our private life. The guy whose quote I started with left Google three years ago and co-founded something called the Center for Humane <laughs> Technology. So this is a guy who was way up at the head of Google and who now, you know, has seen what he has helped wrought and is freaked. Here's another quote from him. We have allies throughout the whole industry because no one wants bad outcomes. He's, he's, he keeps telling us, no, these people don't want to destroy democracy or screw up kids or our relationships. He says, no one wants to contribute to a system 
in which children have poor mental health. No one wants to contribute to a system where you destabilize democracies or even help cause genocides around the world. That might be, but I would counter they don't want to, but that's what they're doing. They're not asking themselves every day when they come up with another new wondrous application. They're not looking down the road, how could this be used? What will be the consequences of this? They're not. Remember uh, last week I was telling you about this, the guy who holds up a sign saying this is a sign and how he's showing up in pictures coming out of Washington, D.C. Um, he was, uh, I saw him in this picture where uh, Roger Stone's attorney is speaking on a courthouse step or something, and the guy's standing where this is a sign. And he has been apparently around enough of late that uh, the Washington Post sent a reporter to say, hey, who, do something with this guy. What is he doing? What's the point? What's he? And he has remained, you know, standoffish. You can, you can think whatever you want about what he's saying with his this is a sign amidst all the other signs that actually are professing something. So I talked about that a little bit, I don't know what, on Thursday or something. And today I was, again, after I've just this screed against social media, I was checking out my Twitter feed and lo and behold, the guy this is a sign guy retweeted my show. What? And I got to ask, how the hell would he, it was just one little part, how, what? And he, he retweeted it uh, this weekend in the morning. And he says, all he said is, at about five minutes in, five, t five ten, at five minutes, ten seconds in, a monologue on this is a sign begins. Lynn Cullen live. And then he's got the... And then he sent me a picture today. And I th it just went to me, and he said, this is for you, and it's him holding up a... Now, I got to tell you, it's not like I'm a fan. I just pointed his presence out. How would he... What the hell? I'm, I really am sort of bewildered. And I must say that I checked him out, so this is a sign guy, and he he doesn't have many followers, on Twitter, and he doesn't follow a lot of people on Twitter, although guess who one of his followers is? Barack Obama! Hey. It's odd. Uh, oh, oh, so Amy's telling me that she lists the topics of our shows on YouTube and so if he Googled himself, it could, it brought it up. So that's how he found us. Jeez. Weird. Also on Twitter today of note, <laughs> Kellyanne Conway's husband. How does that marriage stay together? How the hell does that marriage stay together? I mean, if, if he feels this, wouldn't he have 
wouldn't he? How? He so clearly feels the president is a clear and present danger. And yet his wife is one of the chief enablers who goes to work with that man every day. How could he continue, George Conway, to tolerate being her spouse? And for that matter, how could she tolerate him? I, I, I don't even, it's, it's incomprehensible to me. So George Conway did, uh, he just tweeted out something from the, uh, what do they call that thing, DSM, the diagnostic, the thing doctors use to where it's def they define diseases or issues. I think it's for psych psychological things. I forget what it is. But he specifically looked up uh, why aren't I seeing the whole thing here? Narcissistic <coughs> personality disorder. And so if you were to look that up in the the Bible of, uh, you know, psych psychology or psychiatry, narcissistic personality disorder, it says this about recognizing when somebody has it. And it, this is just from it. And you tell me if this is not a portrait of Donald Trump. And let me tell you that narcissistic personality disorder is a mental illness. Okay? This from George Conway, quoting psych psychiatrists. Narcissistic personality disorder is a pervasive pattern of grandiosity a need for admiration, lack of empathy, uh, present in a variety of contexts as indicated by the following. And listen to this. The person has a grandiose sense of self-importance, for instance, exaggerates achievements and talents, expects to be recognized as superior without commensurate achievements. <laughs> Two, is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success and power and brilliance or ideal love. Three, believes that he is special and unique and can only be understood by other special high-status people. Four, requires, requires excessive admiration. Five, has a sense of entitlement, unreasonable expectations of favorable treatment. Uh, um, six, is interpersonally exploit, exploitative. In other words, takes advantage of others. Seven, lacks empathy is unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. And eight, is often envious of others or believes that others are envious of him or her. Is that not a portrait of Donald Trump? And it's the definition of a mental illness. Now, George Conway, who would also, he knows Donald Trump by virtue of being Kellyanne's husband. And in fact, early in Trump's presidency, Conway was being floated around as a possible, I forget what, but something in the administration, and he said, no thanks. But he knows this guy up close and personal. He sleeps with the woman who is, think he's still, who the hell knows? I, I would think separate bedrooms would be in order. Um, well, I, I have no idea, but he thinks this president is a clear and present danger, and that is why he tweets these things. All right, he got it from the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and that's the book.
that any psychiatrist would uh, would be using. Wow. Just a quick, uh, on the global warming front, <laughs> on the climate change front, you know, I cannot tell you how often in, you know, looking at newspapers today, you will see sort of a collection of stories uh, in the international section uh, of what's happening in places we don't pay any attention to. And often these stories are about weather-related cataclysm, just saying, because global warming will already have, I mean already is, but will much more create refugee crises. People are going to be leaving places that will become uninhabitable, either from drought or, or rising uh, sea levels, um, whatever. And so the two today, these both these stories in today's New York Times, they're not related, but it turns out that uh, three countries in Africa have been hit by a huge cyclone. That's a what they call a hurricane. And um, the death toll in Malawi, Mozambique, and Zimbabwe is over 150 people, hundreds more missing, tens of thousands stranded, cut off from roads, telephones, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so there's that. And then here, Indonesia, flash floods kill at least 50, injuring more in Indonesia, also, a mudslide killed seven people in Indonesia, both set off by the same heavy rains Saturday that uh, caused the flash flooding, which caused the mudslide. So you have a death toll altogether here of over 200 people, weather-related. That's one day's reporting. And another little um, story that I, I just wanted to share with you because I thought it was it was interesting <coughs> with the college cheating scandal. Um, the I guess this is the Times again decided to spend a page today focusing on the stories of kids who don't have parents who have the resources or the lack of morals to do what they in fact uh, as we know these other people did and so they concentrate on a few they do a little profile of some other students and one is a woman here and her name is Serbi Sharma she moved here to the United States with her family. They're refugees, immigrants. She moved here when she was 19 years old. But that was, a, that was some years ago. She had been a freshman in college when her family moved from northern India. And... Um, they moved initially to Gary, Indiana, but then moved here uh, to Pittsburgh. She did not start school. She went to work immediately, as did her parents, to try to make it. This is what immigrants do. She worked at a Dunkin' Donuts. But she always wanted to somehow get back to college. And it took her a long time. First of all, she had to make some money, and uh, she had no sense of really how it all worked here. <laughs> and so 
here in Pittsburgh with her father working at a gas station and her mother as a teller at a bank. Oh, no, she got a job as a teller at a bank here. And she heard about an open house at CCAC uh, with the Community College of Allegheny County. And she went because she thought, maybe this is how I can get back. And halfway through the presentation, she ran out of time because she had to get back to her job. So she didn't hear about financial aid that was available. And it took her another little while to get back in, and eventually she applied and won a scholarship at CCAC. And that happened four years after she had gone to that open house and ended up having to leave. So this young woman is now well into her 20s, and she is at CCAC full-time. The past two years, it says here, she has been studying mathematics and radiation technology. She has won honors and other scholarships. She has served in student leadership positions, particularly those involving outreach to immigrant students. And most recently, she's been putting in clinical hours at a hospital. Um, eight years it took her to get to this point. Eight years of hard work. And she now is waiting to hear from some colleges that she has applied to, uh, four-year colleges. And uh, she wants to ideally study radiation therapy. And all of the schools that she has applied to are in uh, Pennsylvania. But that's just one of the people that the Times chose to say, you know, while these rich kids just get everything handed to them on a silver platter, there are people, wonderful students, who want to contribute. I'm sure much more than the despicable young creeps that we have seen that benefited from their parents' uh, money and pull and lack of ethics. And it's sobering to see that kids who really work their tails off, who do the work, can lose a place to somebody that has cheated their way in. Disgusting. Okay, that's it pretty much. Just wanted to remind you that if you go to Taste30Pittsburgh30, Taste30Pittsburgh.com, you'll see a whole bunch of restaurants with wonderful, wonderful, wonderful food. And they're all engaged in this thing that lasts through the month of March where they all have these prefix menus, um, lots of different stuff on them where you can try stuff out and it won't cost you ever more than $39. That's what they've all agreed on. 30 to 39 bucks would be the price. And um, a lot of great restaurants on there. Wow. Taste30pgh.com if you want to take advantage. Okay. I'll see you guys tomorrow. And I'm assuming my sister Susan will be joining us. Thank you. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.